Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Michael Hogan about his new account of the development of the posthumous image of America's 35th president, entitled The Afterlife of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, a biography. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here, Mark. It's good to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Oh, my. <laughs> Well, I'm an American historian, of course, and I've taught all over the country, uh, most notably at the Ohio State University, where I'm emeritus at the moment, and uh, most recently at the University of Illinois on the Springfield campus, where uh, I am about to retire as of December. Uh, I've mostly focused on research dealing with American diplomacy and national security policy, so this new book on Kennedy is a little bit of a departure that I came to after about a 10-year hiatus, maybe 12-year hiatus, spending my time mostly in academic administration, everything from department chair to dean to provost to university president. And with that behind me, I looked forward to getting back to where I started with undergraduate teaching uh, and uh, a new research and scholarship, but in a, in a somewhat new direction for me. Uh, dealing with this whole issue of Kennedy and history and memory as opposed to my old concerns with national security policy and foreign policy. What drew you to this as a topic, and and, and, uh, how did the book uh, come to be? Well, I suppose you'll hear this from a lot of authors. It didn't start out to be the book it ended up being. I started out thinking that I would write a little book, really, to ease me back into research and writing, a little book basically on John Kennedy's funeral. Uh, I had uh, not been old enough to vote for Kennedy, but I was old enough to have sharp memories of his assassination and the funeral that followed. I remembered it then, and I think it remains in memory one of the most dramatic events, public events in all of the 20th century. And so I thought it would be fun to write a little book about that significant and dramatic event, although when I got into it, I found that uh, enough had already been written that I couldn't find a whole book on that topic for myself that would be original enough to make to entice a publisher. But it was just enough research on the funeral and on the assassination to make me wonder why we remember Kennedy the way we do uh, I got captivated by the image he and his wife presented of themselves at the time, what I call the Kennedy brand, and how that has endured uh, over, well, at that point, 50 years of his uh, afterlife. So I decided to follow that through and uh, look at how we remember John F. Kennedy and his afterlife and why we remember him that way. Because, you know, memory is so much about what we do remember, but it's also about what we forget, choose not to remember. And it's often constructed, particularly when it comes to public officials. We, They and Kennedy included, constructed, in a sense, their own image. They uh, 
what some have called Camelot, other has called the Kennedy style, what I call the Kennedy brand, which is really a self-representation of self that is really designed to appeal to the, well, in some cases, consumers, in other cases, political voters, and enhance the power of the president. So I got interested in discerning the elements of this brand, how it was constructed, and how it shaped the memory we still have of the president today. As you explain in the first chapter, it's not a building process that begins with his death, but it begins with his presidency. So it's a it's a brand construction or a cultivation that really begins with John F. Kennedy himself and the people yeah. around him. Right. You're absolutely right. I, uh, uh, I spend... Oh, a part of two chapters, I guess, talking about the Kennedys in the White House to get a clear sense uh, of the image that they tried to project. And, of course, it's a very familiar image to us today, uh, and it was at the time. I talk about them. I use the literature, new literature on performance studies to talk about the Kennedys as basically as actors who played the role, played the role of president and first lady on the White House stage. And in fact, I talk a little bit about how Jacqueline Kennedy carefully constructed uh, or restored the White House as a stage for the performance of her husband's presidency. And then that stage and the productions it hosted, uh, I talk a little bit about their celebrated state dinners, for example, with all the elaborate costumes, especially her fabulous wardrobe, you know, and uh, the Jackie's, the the Jackie look, and so on, and and also the celebrated state dinners. They had about seventy of them per year, or a big official, not only state dinners but big official events in the White House, and uh, and the art orchestrated entertainments, their use of uh, the high and the and and the low arts, I guess, to entertain their guests, and uh, these all become sort of parts of the of the uh, pieces of the mosaic that Kennedy and his wife crafted for themselves while they were in the White House. So was their youth. We remember them as youthful, charming, people of at least apparent vitality. It turned out they weren't all that vital. As well as the president's optimism, his uh, inspirational rhetoric, his self uh, self-confidence. Uh, all of this constituted what I would call one part of the Kennedy brand, their personal attributes and personal style uh, that then melded with, uh, in terms of the president, melded with what might be called his, uh, what people saw as his virtues, his heroism, for example, in the Second World War, his compassion, his devotion to duty, his loyalty to family and nation. All of these supposedly inspired his commitment to world peace and social justice, all of these characteristics make Kennedy and his wife appear, as I argue, to be sort of the ideal American. They possessed everything themselves, or symbolized everything themselves, that was good in America, or that Americans wanted to believe in themselves. And it was enormously popular. I think, uh, if I remember right, his average standing approval rating on, say, Gallup polls and other polls all during the course of his three and a half years as president averaged about a little more than 70%. Can you imagine a president or a presidential candidate getting anything like that kind of rating from uh, from the American public? In fact, it was at one point as high as 86%. 
it dipped into the high to about the mid-60s, I guess, just in the last months of his life, mainly as a byproduct of his strong stand on behalf of civil rights and so on. But generally speaking, the brand that they connected, how they presented themselves to the public was enormously popular. And, of course, it depended on concealing certain things as well. Uh, they, uh, they carefully managed their image to conceal certain aspects or attributes of personality and style that they didn't want others to see. Like, we didn't know at the time that she was a, a pretty heavy smoker, a pack a day at least, during, during all of the presidency. We didn't know that about Jacqueline Kennedy till much later. We didn't know that she had sometimes used amphetamines to get herself up and keep herself going. We didn't know all that much, though a little bit more, about her uh, luxurious living and the hundred, $150,000 a year she spent on her wardrobe and on, on uh, fashion and on entertainments and so on. And we didn't know also about the president's dependence on amphetamines and other drugs during his life. We didn't know much about all the serious medical problems he confronted. We didn't know much about his numerous uh, liaisons or romances with other women while he was in the White House and so on. All of this was sort of concealed from public view, and the focus was always on the positive, and the image was indeed positive and very, very uh, popular with the American people. And that's the image we take out of their life in the White House, and that's the image we take into history, in part, well, for reasons I discuss in the book. One of the things that uh, I thought was especially interesting about your book, and, and this is something I didn't know uh, before I read it, was just how central Jackie Kennedy was to the construction of that image, not just during the presidency, but afterward as well. You, you in your first couple chapters, explain the, the centrality of the role, and it's a role that many Americans remember, uh, the tour of the White House on national television and so forth. But then when you have the sudden event of the assassination, which in effect, uh, you know, affects a radical uh, shift in the focus and goal of this, uh, of this brand construction, she nonetheless remains at the center of it and, and is, is very influential in terms of directing the, 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 uh, this, this project for decades. Yeah, I think uh, I don't want to downplay the importance of the assassination itself because it did trigger uh, a major cultural trauma in the United States. And one feature of a cultural trauma it was a it was a sort of general tendency to further burnish Kennedy's constructed image, so that uh, uh, you know. Kennedy was now compared with Lincoln and with Roosevelt, each of whom had supposedly given his uh, life so that others might enjoy the blessings of liberty. Uh, and now his image, as he had constructed it in the White House, was overlaid with the sacred symbol of all that was good in America. His virtues were those of the nation itself. In this sense, sort of the manner of his death, the fact that he was assassinated so suddenly, was an important source of what became his enduring frame in American in American memory over time. It really, it really basically transformed the constructed image of the president, now glossed in the glory of a fallen hero, into a sort of flashbulb memory, as sociologists call it, that most Americans carried with them, well, to their own grave, really. 
yet, as you explain, that is not inevitable because, after all, I mean, we we as you point out, we, we put him in the pantheon with Lincoln and with Roosevelt. We we don't put him in the pantheon with Garfield and McKinley. And, and it, it, so, while definitely the assassination does a lot to shape that memory, as you explain. It's they don't take that for granted. In fact, they they do a lot uh, early on to burnish that image and to cement it in the American imagination. You might have seen the movie Jackie. I don't know if you have or not, or if your listeners have, but I, I would strongly recommend it. Uh, it's a pretty good work of. Uh, well, it's an excellent movie, but it's fairly accurate uh, to the historical truth as well. But. They capture in that movie Jackie's concern after her husband's death that he would simply be remembered for what he accomplished. And she didn't like that very much she, because he had only been in the office three and a half years. He hadn't done a second term and he had faced a conservative coalition in Congress that blocked almost everything he tried to do. So from her point of view, he needed to be remembered not for what he did so much, but for what he represented. And this whole notion that he was, in fact, the and, and the and an ideal American, that he embodied everything that was good in American life, she wanted him remembered as as the president, as the guy who played the role of president on the in, on the White House stage, and embodied all the attributes and all the virtues that I mentioned earlier. And she was determined that he be remembered that way. And she tells the journalist Theodore uh, White. Uh, uh, the scene is portrayed in the movie, Jackie, uh, that, that's how she wanted him remembered in romantic terms, not in terms of, uh, as she would say, political science or, or dull and or dull history, as she would say. So she devotes herself the rest of her life to, to not only to defending that image and embedding it so deeply in American memory that even the most aggressive critics could not dislodge it, really. And she begins right away with the president's funeral. As I talk about, I devote a whole chapter to the funeral. At last, I got something out of that early research. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she stages the funeral. Literally, she, I mean, a lot of the funeral, John Kennedy's funeral, was dictated by custom and tradition and rules that were embedded by in, in, in the military manual of the uh, Department of uh, uh, which had oversight of funerals and also of the Arlington Cemetery. But a lot of it was personal stuff that Jackie added to the funeral herself. And no, most notably was her decision to sort of stage the president's lying in state and lying in repose uh, after Lincoln's funeral. And uh, so she looks up how Lincoln's funeral worked and how the White House was decorated for the funeral, and she instructs her staff, to replicate that, sort of modernize it in the process, but replicate that to remind or to help uh, viewers remember the president in terms of his standing on civil rights and the sacrifice, including the sacrifice of his life that he and, 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 and Lincoln gave on behalf of the nation. So she, and she does the same with FDR. Uh, people don't know this generally. We know that she used the catapult that Lincoln rested on when Kennedy was lying in state in the rotunda. And uh, we know that she decorated her house in a vein very similar to the way the house had been decorated, the White House had been decorated when uh, Lincoln was lying in repose. 
But you don't, don't remember the fact that she also used the same um, uh, caisson to carry the president's bodies from the White House to to the Capitol, the Capitol of St. Matthew, St. Matthew's to Ireland, the same caisson that carried the body of, uh, of uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, when uh, his remains journeyed from the White House up to the Capitol for lying in repose. So in, in, a, in just these little gestures were not accidental. She didn't. You have to read them. They're symbolic gestures and have to be read as text. She was trying to convey to the American people a certain message about her husband, her dead husband. And the message that she was conveying uh, was designed to be that she wanted to be frozen in American memory over the long term. So beginning really with the funeral, and then not to mention the burial at Arlington with the eternal flame and and the very location of the grave. Let me speak to that a minute, if I can. I mean, he's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Only one other president is buried there, William Howard Taft. She had to overcome considerable opposition, particularly from the family that wanted him buried in Boston. She thought that he was president of the nation and should be buried at a national site, and she chose Arlington National Cemetery in part because, you know, he was a veteran. And there were 125,000 veterans at that time buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Some of them, many of them actually, had died in battle, had given their lives for the country. That's how she saw her husband, a hero of the Pacific War, and now the victim of an assassin's bullet while he was commander-in-chief. And she wanted people to remember that about him. And that's why she chose Arlington National Cemetery. And then she locates the body in Arlington Cemetery, just below the Lee Custis Mansion and directly across Memorial Bridge to the Lincoln Memorial. And uh, you can think for yourself the kind of symbolism that was embedded in that as she wanted the Kennedy scene again as linked to Lincoln, uh, as, as, as a great president who had given his life so that others might enjoy the blessings of liberty. And she wanted people to see John F. Kennedy also as a great reconciler like Lincoln who tried to reconcile North and South uh, on the eve of the Civil War and then thereafter and so on. She wanted John Kennedy seen in the same light as a man had given his life trying to uh, unify or keep unified a nation that was blowing itself apart along political and partisan and regional lines and so on. So in everything she did has to be read as a symbol, as, as a gesture, a symbolic gesture that conveyed a message that she wanted people to remember. Think about this. Uh, stand at, at, at Kennedy's gravesite and look back across the capital city. What you see is the Lincoln Memorial behind that, the uh, Washington um, Monument to the right. You'll see the Jefferson Memorial and, and so on. So she, she links her husband's grave uh, to the great monuments in honor of the great American presidents and, and leaving the impression, which she wanted, that her husband also was one of the greatest of American presidents. So that began the work, I, was, I said in uh, the book, of transforming or moving Kennedy from history to memory with a kind of funeral and burial uh, that conveyed a certain message about Kennedy, who he was and how he should be remembered. It's a fascinating preemption if you think about it. It took nearly a, a three quarters of a century to begin the Washington Memorial. The Lincoln Monument Memorial wasn't built until the 1920s. They only finished the FDR Memorial in the 1990s. And yet she, in the space of 
you know, literally weeks, days, is able to, in effect, create something that is very much in line with the great monuments of the nation's capital. Yeah, and it's actually a great monument if you look at it. It's minimalistic, of course, which is what she wanted, probably what he would have wanted as well. And uh, but it's none, none, nonetheless monumental, I guess I would say. So uh, it conveys a very, very strong message about uh, John F. Kennedy. You describe another dimension of this struggle early on in your book when you talk about how she was also very determined to shape the narrative of her husband's assassination. And here you uh, talk about the. The, the competing books that are being written by, uh, initially it's Jim Bishop, and then you have William Manchester, who are rushing out these accounts of the Kennedy assassination itself. Yeah. She, um, of course, she would do this the rest of her life, too, as I also discuss in the book, but um, she was aware, uh, if you see the movie Jackie, so this actually comes up, she, in talking to Theodore White, she recalls that uh, that there there were people, Arthur Crock, and she mentions uh, Merriman, uh, Smith, and others, who were already trying to assess Kennedy's reputation just within days and weeks uh, after he had been assassinated. And she was disgusted by that. Uh, she wanted to have uh, the story of Kennedy's life and of his death told uh, in terms she would approve of. So uh, she brings uh, Theodore White... Uh, to, to visit her within weeks of the uh, of the president's funeral, I think only probably just two or three weeks, if I remember right now, meets him at Hyannisport and and condemns some of his early uh, newspaper journalistic accounts of Kennedy's legacy and his meaning in American history. She condemns it, and that's where she talks about how she doesn't these kinds of accounts miss the point entirely of Jack Kennedy's life. He really needed to be remembered in romantic terms and, and mystical terms as, uh, as a symbol, uh, as a man who represented all that was good in American life. That's how she wanted him remembered. And to make sure of that, she decided to try to preempt uh, historical, uh, uh, preempt all, all accounts that differed from her own uh, account. And so she didn't like Jim Bishop. He was a I always think of Jim Bishop. I think of uh, Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> Jim Bishop made a, a reputation writing about the death of different presidents. He wrote a book, very famous and very popular book, on the death of Lincoln, for example, a pot boiler, you might say. And he had a he had a, a desire to write the same kind of book on the death and assassination of Kennedy. Actually, he did already. He did eventually do that. But uh, he wanted to interview her and get her approval and so on, and she rejected it entirely because she thought he would sensationalize in the wrong way Kennedy's life and his assassination. Instead, uh, so she 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 basically cut him off. She wrote everybody and said, "Don't don't do any interviews with this guy." She probably interfered with his publisher so that he had to give up on his original plans to publish with a major. Uh, commercial press and go somewhere else. Uh, and instead, she tried to get uh, her version of Kennedy's assassination told the way she wanted it told. And for that purpose, she and her brother-in-law, Bobby Kennedy, recruited William Manchester. Uh, he was a 
sort of academically affiliated writer. Uh, had uh, written a couple of pretty good books and went on to write other pretty good books. Uh, had even written a small kind of campaign biography of John Kennedy. It was very, very flattering. So after trying to get a couple of other people to write and have and and and, and getting rejected, they finally settled on on Manchester. He was to get write the authorized official history of Kennedy's assassination, and Jackie Kennedy would only talk to him. Nobody else. He alone would be able to interview her. He alone would be able to see some of the records dealing with the assassination and so on. And he wrote actually a very impressive book, very major, very thick, long book. And the book that sort of preempted my own plans to write an independent book on just on the funeral assassination and funeral of Kennedy. Unfortunately, there were elements of the book. He signed a contract with the Kennedys that in the end gave them some authority over approving the final man, manuscript and, and terms of publication. turned out to be a big mistake uh, because in the end he produced a manuscript that contained elements they didn't care for and mostly personal details that she thought were too private to be uh, made public, uh, nothing so startling to us today, such as the simple fact that she didn't tell her own children that their father had been killed. She left that to the nanny. Uh, so uh, she didn't want that, even though it's generally well known at the time, she didn't want that included in the book. And there were other details uh, that she didn't want to be included, mostly of a personal sort. But there were others, Bobby Kennedy and some of his advisors, who worried that Manchester was way too harsh on LBJ and that that could hurt Bobby Kennedy's own prospects, own political prospects at that time. He was already thinking of leaving the Attorney General's office, and indeed he did. He got elected to the Senate and was thinking of perhaps a run for the presidency. So Bobby and Jacqueline Kennedy then come together with their advisors and do almost everything they can to force Manchester to edit and re-edit and re-edit and re-edit and revise and revise and revise his manuscript until it was just perfect as they wanted it to be and at some point he just said he couldn't do it anymore she took him to court they had a lawsuit and finally reached a settlement but I cite that as a very good illustration of her efforts in the, very early on to control the way history would remember John F. Kennedy to make sure he would be remembered as she wanted him remembered and what she wanted Kennedy remembered as the person he sort of the self-constructed John F. Kennedy that he presented with her in the White House years. One of the other uh, ways that they controlled Manchester, as you describe, is, and I thought this was interesting, they put it in the contract that a uh, certain amount uh, had to go to the, uh, from the, uh, the proceeds of the book, had to go to the Kennedy Library, basically sort of like a, a forced donation that Manchester was uh, having to make to uh, begin this next project, because after the book, that in terms of this Kennedy memorialization, the attention of both Jackie Kennedy and, and the Kennedy and the Kennedy family more generally turns to this effort to build a Kennedy Library, and also in in in, in Massachusetts and in D.C. this Kennedy Center, which uh, which has this uh, very fascinating. Uh, uh, conjunction of both Kennedy memorialization and the embodiment of, of, of 
Jackie's ideas for what the capital needed. Uh, that's right. The, I think Man- Manchester made a fortune off the book, of course, and uh, but he had to give, I think, a $750,000 donation from his royalties to the Kennedy Library Fund, which was then raising money for construction what eventually became the John F. Kennedy Memorial Library. And, uh, uh, um, but, uh, even the library, all the uh, venues you suggested, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., the uh, Kennedy Space Center in Florida, and the Kennedy Library, and so on, all of these were monuments constructed uh, in Kennedy's honor. All of them can be read as a text to project and to convey a certain message about John F. Kennedy. And in almost every case, they were messages that, that uh, Jackie Kennedy uh, approved. I mean, she and her husband, John F. Kennedy, had already approved the Performing Arts Center. They pr- uh, approved the design, the uh, architect, and so on. He and she were well-known to be, especially she was, uh, supporters of the arts. So she wanted him remembered in that way, and she intercedes with President Johnson again right after the assassination to uh, to name the, the what was then the National Cultural Center as the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, and he agreed, raised money through Congress to help construct uh, uh, the building, and. Uh, the same, something similar happened in connection with the Space Center, as I talk about. I mean, one of the things Kennedy was remembered for, and she wanted him remembered for, was the role he played in creating the space program, and especially the, you know, historic effort to put a man uh, on on the moon. <coughs> and uh, all that mostly came to fruition, of course, after he was dead, but there's no doubt that he was devoted to the space project. That he worked hard on its behalf, and he wanted her. And it also captured a lot of Kennedy's personality, um, more so, I'd say, than the cultural center, because he really was not a high culture guy. He was more a guy like novels and James Bond spy thrillers and that kind of thing. Although he did love history, and he was interested in architecture. Generally speaking, the real. Uh, lover of the arts in that family was Jackie Kennedy, and she, in fact, had been the honorary chairwoman for the National Culture Center in its efforts to raise money to get itself lifted off the ground. But he he was a, a person of some of some sense of adventure, and he was an optimistic person, very self-confident and confident in the nation. And he believed people could. There was no dream too small, and I think that's what she tried to capture by having the space center... Uh, uh, named in in his honor, and it, and it remains uh, it remains that way today. <laughs> and you can make the same point about uh, the Kennedy Library. I mean, that in her mind was designed to to uh, call forth memories of Kennedy as a man of letters. Uh, he had probably written more books than any president, more articles, not that he did them all himself, but his name was on all of them. And uh, he, of course, won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, he was—he liked to picture himself, and others did too, as a man of letters, as a kind of public intellectual, not just a politician, and a person who loved history and studying history and studying public policy. 
also all of those uh, all of those images of Kennedy, all aspects of that image, were uh, were captured in the Kennedy Library that exists today, which of course then turned around and tried to monitor, you might even say police, uh, the way uh, Kennedy would be remembered in serious historical literature, mostly by regulating access to his records some, and, and giving preferential treatment to some authors while uh, discouraging others, you might say. How is it that they were able to do that, given that the <clears throat> library is, at least in theory, under the control of the National Archives? Well, because uh, Kennedy's donated the papers to the, National Ar- to the National Archives to be located eventually at the Kennedy Library before the modern rules governing such donations applied. And his, and at the time they gave those records to the National Archives, it was still permitted. Uh, and this would be the case until the Nixon administration, when they had the big battle over who owned the Nixon's papers. They changed the laws at that point. But when Kennedy's papers were donated, uh, it was permitted for the donating party, in this case the Kennedy Pam family, to determine for, by themselves what was donated, what was not what was open, when it would be open, and under what conditions it would be open. Some limitations applied for national security reasons, and they still apply today, not only to Kennedy, but to all presidents. But at that time, she could insist on, and they did, the Kennedys did insist on, uh, being able to deny access to records if access would uh, damage or injure the the president and his family in any way at all. So they had a great loophole there that isn't available to presidents today. And it's, uh, I mean, they, they used it and continue to use it, I think, to some extent. And as a result, a lot of historians have been very unhappy with the way the Kennedy Library has been managed over the years, including even recently, it's only a couple of years ago of that, maybe a year ago, had a big brouhaha at the library that uh, many thought had to do with um, uh, with the Kennedy Foundation being too aggressive in the way they were managing the library. So the library, and, and you describe how a lot of the personnel are appointed, people like Dave Powers, who's, who's, who's involved with it for several yeah. decades, are, 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 are controlling this access. And yet, while they can definitely... Uh, do a lot to influence it. As you described, they really cannot, you know, they cannot have exclusive control over the narrative. And so you describe how, uh, beginning in the 1960, in the early 1970s, you start to see this revisionism, if you will, where you start to see this, this, you know, effort to uh, assess Kennedy's reputation differently. What was causing uh, that? Separation, if you will, or that, or that split away from this dominant image, and and who who was behind it, and 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 what ways were they redefining Kennedy's image? Well, uh, the first, and I talk first about the so-called first generation, the founding generation of Kennedy scholars, people like Arthur Schlesinger and Theodore Sorensen, and many many others. Many of them worked for Kennedy uh, during the administration. They were friends of his. They knew him. They shared Jacqueline Kennedy's view of the heroic image of her fallen husband. And in fact, they often, uh, she usually insisted, and they often agreed to 
let her review their manuscripts before they were published. And uh, so that gave her quite a good control right there over how Kennedy would remember it, even in serious literature. And that lasted for about a decade. <clears throat> but by the, I'd say by 1970, 75 in there, you see the emergence of a group of revisionist historians, mostly leftist, new left historians of the period. I was one of them myself, you might say, a little later, but still uh, I subscribed to that point of view. And they were very much more critical of Kennedy. They didn't see him as particularly heroic. They saw him as, uh, as a traditional politician, way too cautious, reluctant to risk his reputation, his prospects for re-election by doing the right thing on civil rights, for example. So they think, and mostly his economic policies were seen as basically conservative and pro-business, and uh, his foreign policy was seen as unnecessarily aggressive, and and so on. So they took a very, very, and of course they were very harsh on his private life, which had been exposed as a result of Senate hearings and uh, publication of a series of kiss and tell books. Uh, and so they they see Kennedy in a very different light, almost the opposite of how the first generation of Kennedy scholars saw him. And that was a very popular point of view on Kennedy, and of course also on almost everybody else who was, uh, I mean, that was just sort of the way historians looked at all of American history, and there were no heroes anymore, I would say. Even the great American presidents, Lincoln or Washington, for example, Jefferson, came in for serious and severe criticism. So did Kennedy. And that point of view kind of dominated the literature, I would say, throughout the 70s and 80s, but then began to fade in the 1990s and was replaced really by what I call a group of post-revisionist scholars. And here I would count people like uh, oh, Robert Dalek, for example, more recently uh, someone like uh, oh, Larry Savato, for example, at the University of Virginia. And this group of post-revisionist scholars tended to strike a kind of balance between the orthodox view of Kennedy and the revisionist view of Kennedy. They they didn't exactly deny Kennedy's shortcomings. They were, on the contrary, they were very forthcoming about his womanizing, his ill health. Uh, they thought he was, in some ways. Uh, a little too cautious in his domestic and and domestic policy, maybe a little too reckless in his foreign policy. But on the other hand, they put him, they sort of situated him in this, in, in a, what I call a proper historical context. That, uh, that he, the way, you know, the fact that he was only elected with 49.6 or 7 percent of the vote, for example, he didn't have a majority, he didn't have a lot of leverage in Congress as a result. He had to behave, he had to move more cautiously. Yet they still think that in the end he got more done than he's given credit for, and he inspired a lot more that was accomplished in the years after his life. So that becomes the sort of post-revisionist point of view, a sort of balanced point of view uh, that I think still dominates the literature today. What's interesting is how, for all the criticism you see from the 1970s on, and for all of the revelations from tell-all books and, uh, you know, 
Nigel Hamilton's Reckless Youth, uh, Dalek's book, which really did a lot to expose uh, the, the, the degree of, of candy sale health. It really has had such little uh, change to the image that's in the popular imagination. Uh, you could throw all these slings and brickbats at, 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 at Kennedy from a historical perspective, and, it, and, and they just bounce off. That, that, that the image seems to have, in that sense, is Jacqueline Kennedy successful in terms of creating an image that, that is resilient? I would say, Mark, that she was very successful, and her family continues to be successful today. But not alone. I mean, there are a lot of other reasons we still look at. I think, the, uh, I think for one thing, we've become inured to the kind of scandals that, uh, you know, particularly romantic, as a romantic affair, the kind of Kennedy scandals. That was shocking then, but less so in, in, in contemporary life, for example. Secondly, I think a lot of historians have, and people generally have, come to appreciate, probably as a result of Obama's administration, I mean, Obama faced the same kind of conservative coalition that Kennedy faced, and he, too, found that almost every one of his initiatives was stymied in in Congress as a result. So I think because of what we've lived through more recently, we've come, people generally, and historians in particular, I I see this, for example, in in Sabato or in... uh, uh, some of the other uh, li- recent post-revisionist literature, we've, we've come to have a more sympathetic view of what of the context in which Kennedy operated and give him more credit than we might have given him than the post-revisionist, than the revisionist historians did in the 80s and early 90s. And then finally, uh, we have to remember these days that people especially younger people, people under the age of 40. And by the way, the most the group that seems to be most favorable to Kennedy's reputation today are people who weren't even alive at the time he was assassinated. They had no personal experience with him. It's all a memory to them. And we have to remember that uh, their memories are not always shaped by serious reading of history. Uh, their, their memories are mediated, you might say, by technology, by the movies, by what I call the, you know, by TV documentaries, by popular literature, and so on, what I call collectively the heritage industry. That's where a lot of people get their history today, especially young people, I guess. They're more likely to get their view of history through uh, the mediated perspective of uh, television, museums, uh, popular magazines, popular books, movies, movies TV, uh, Hollywood movies, and so on. And there are dozens of these things produced. Even now, I'm just amazed. Uh, you can't go into a grocery store, go by the magazine rack, and not see a, a picture on the cover of some magazine of Kennedy or of Jacqueline Kennedy or of both of them. So people get their view of the past. Uh, they have their view of the past mediated through these heritage industries. And Kennedy has always been popular, and the heritage industry is mostly about marketing popularity because that's what sells. They make Kennedy is, in, in some way, the product now of the heritage industry, and they have a vested interest in perpetuating what I would call the the uh, the uh, self the image of Kennedy that he constructed of himself when he was in the White House, and the same image that his wife had continued to construct on his behalf 
nurture and protect in the years after, until she died in 1994. So I think that's why it helps us to explain why his... Also, I, can I add one more thing? Uh, or maybe I should take a break here and let you ask a question once in a while. No, go, go ahead. Go ahead. I have one more thing. <clears throat> well, the last chapter I talk about the phenomena of nostalgia. And uh, I think Kennedy looks so good today. Robert Dalek made this point once. He looks so good today because what came later looks so bad. I mean, you had... LBJ and the Vietnam War, you had Nixon and Watergate and on and on and on. And I think people these days, well, actually, we know for a fact from the work of Fred Davis and other uh, sociologists, among others, that uh, beginning in the 70s, the country saw a huge wave of nostalgia uh, where they looked back uh, sentimentally on, on a bygone day that was supposedly a better day. And uh, I think that phenomenon applies to Kennedy. People look back on Kennedy. They see not in the real Kennedy, but in the self-constructed image of Kennedy. And Kennedy, as he performed his part as president on the White House stage, they see in that a better day when we were more confident as a people, more optimistic about our future, uh, more... uh, more, more certain that we could shape a better future and play a major role in world affairs. We've lost all of that to some extent these days in, in, in contemporary politics. But we look back on those days of the early 60s in the Kennedy administration when we felt great about ourselves, who we were and what we were doing in the world. And um, that's why I think that's one factor, I think, in sustaining Kennedy's long reputation in American memory. That strikes me as Jacqueline Kennedy's particular genius, because you look at presidents that preceded uh, her husband, and you do have the libraries, you do have uh, the tombs, uh, but it seems that she was the one who appreciated the value of maintaining that uh, popular, that image of the popular imagination in a way that you that other that that her uh, her husband's predecessors never really seemed to grasp, or never even really contemplated, let alone uh, 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 try to achieve. I think, of course, that's true. Uh, but it's well, uh, you, you can go back to Lincoln, where um, Lincoln, not Lincoln's family so much, certainly not his wife, but his friends and admirers worked very hard to make, as as uh, Barry Schwartz points out worked very, very hard to make Lincoln worthy of remembrance. and But between then and Kennedy, not so much with other presidents. Even since then, the only person, I don't know how it'll work out with Obama, but the only person that you, the only president that comes close to Kennedy in, in that regard it would be Reagan. And because the Republican Party has made a systematic effort to create a... Uh, an image of him in in his, after his death uh, that would be as inspirational to his supporters as the Kennedy image has been to supporters in the Democratic Party. But they haven't succeeded to the same extent, in part because I think they have not had a uh, a wife and a family that has been as strong and as unified and determined to protect Kennedy's reputation. 
the, the Reagans simply haven't been able to do that in the same way. Uh, so, uh, so I think you're right, uh, not only looking backwards to a large extent, but even looking forward from Kennedy's death, there's no parallel. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? <laughs> I wished I could. <laughs> I'll take some suggestions, but uh, I'm looking around. I thought of, I thought uh, years ago I started a book on Reagan and history and memory. I wanted to write a book about Reagan and the end of the Cold War, not how he ended the Cold War, but how we how he constructed memories about how he ended the Cold War, particularly that construction done on uh, by people in the Republican Party and the right wing of the Republican Party in particular. But uh, I started this project many, many years ago and never got it finished, and I think it may be too late to go back to it. So I'm also thinking of a, a project uh, that would focus on Bobby Kennedy, and in particular his 1968 campaign, but not by itself, but as, but as an illustration or in the context of the uh, sort of revolution in politics, the emergence of the new politics and so on in the mid-1960s, which I see as kind of a precursor to much of what is going on today. Um, I don't know if I'll, I'll continue with that project or not. Short, I haven't got a project in mind, <laughs> so if you and your audience have some recommendations, <laughs> send them to me. <laughs> Well, I think that is a first in the history of New Books Network podcasting. You basically outsour uh, uh, outsource, outsource my topic. ideas, yeah. <laughs> well, we all do a lot of that anyway, whether we want to admit it or not. <laughs> very true. Uh, well, Michael Hogan, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, same to you, Mark. Bye-bye. <laughs>